I'd like to actually read one verse, so if you'll stand with me. If you have Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, Ezra 6, 14, that's going to be really the springboard that we're going to start from today, and uh, we're going to be in a, in a couple of different, we're going to be in the book of Ezra, and also Haggai and Zechariah doing a little bit of a survey. So uh, let's read our verse, Ezra 6, 14, if you're turned there. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. You may be seated. So um, every year in Austria, Calvary Chapel has a a missions conference that they do. There's a wonderful facility there. It's called the castle. It's like a small castle sort of place. And uh, they do this wonderful missions conference every August. And this past summer, I was there and they had a, a very small version of that conference because of the coronavirus and because of, um, you know, there are a lot of travel restrictions and all that sort of thing. So it was just a small group of people and it was informal. They didn't have any uh, speakers scheduled or anything like that. It was more like just take a break from the ministry in different parts of Europe and come together and be with the Lord. And during that week, I was asked to do a devotion on one of the evenings. And the Lord put this verse that we just read on my heart. And I gave this message or a similar version of it. And uh, it's called The Prophets and the Builders. And it's interesting in the book of Ezra, we're going to be we're going to be doing the first going through the first six chapters, just pulling some things out and then connecting some of the prophes, prophecies in Haggai and um, the book of Zechariah. But uh, in, in Amos three seven, it says, "Surely the Lord does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets." And so I want to connect some of these prophecies and just show how they energize the work that is happening on the ground in the book of Ezra as uh, as Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest have returned to basically rebuild the temple and basically to to restart the work of God in his land. The Bible is all about, well, it's a revelation of who God is and it's a revelation of his love for us, but it's a book of redemption. And we know that all the way back in Genesis, man fell in the garden, but right away, God began almost, you know, he, he, as he's pronouncing the judgment on the serpent, he's also giving the first mention of the gospel, the proto-evangelium, Genesis 3.15, where he pronounces this judgment on the serpent that you shall strike his heel, but he shall crush your head. Speaking of you know, Satan trying to defeat the work of Jesus, but Jesus defeating him at the cross. And we see the the plan of redemption unfolding through uh, the line of, of um, Noah and then Shem and then ultimately Abraham. Abraham gives birth to Isaac uh, and then we have Jacob and then we have the 12 patriarchs. They go down into Egypt and they become enslaved for five, 400 years and then the Lord leads them out with the hand of Moses and with a mighty hand. And they wander in the desert for 40 years. And then they enter the promised land. And God's plan of redemption begins to unfold. 
and the Israelites are the covenant people of God, yet because of their covenantal unfaithfulness, we know that in 586 BC, they're taken captive to Babylon, yet God is not done with them. God has never really finished with his people. Um, so that basically brings us up to the book of Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah, in the Hebrew scriptures, it was basically one book or one scroll focusing on three different leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel leads a large group back to rebuild the temple to kind of get worship going after 70 years of judgment in Babylon. He leads a group back to rebuild the temple and to restore worship in the promised land. And he's accompanied by Haggai the prophet uh, and Zechariah the prophet, and Joshua the high priest is there also. Uh, Ezra comes about 60 years later and returns to teach the Torah and to rebuild the community. And then finally, we have Nehemiah some years later who returns to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's interesting that each of these three leaders returns as the result of a decree from a Persian king who has been stirred by God. Each of these three leaders faces opposition in the work that they are doing, the work that God has called them to. What I want to focus on specifically today is Zerubbabel's task, along with Joshua the high priest, and that task is detailed in Ezra 1 through 6, the first six chapters, and it's basically a 23-year period from the edict of Cyrus to the rebuilding of the temple. Um, first of all, who was Zerubbabel? Well, we know from the scriptures that he was the governor of Judah after the exile. We know that from Haggai 1.1. We also know that he was a descendant of King David through Jehoiachin, king of Judah, we know that from First Chronicles 3.17, and he's also listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So in some ways, he becomes a messianic sort of figure, and we'll talk a, a little bit about that. Um, just to skim a little bit through the book of Ezra, uh, chapter 1, Cyrus makes this decree to rebuild the temple uh, it says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And um, I'll just read a little bit from chapter one. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom. And basically to paraphrase, he's giving anyone in his kingdom who wants to go back to Jerusalem, the, the right to go back and to help in terms of getting worship restarted again. It's a pagan king that God uses, which is interesting. Um, it's interesting, verse 5 of chapter 1, it says that they go back, and those that go back, it says, with all whose spirits God had moved, uh, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, God has this plan, and we can see it before the captivity ever even happened through the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah said, hey, you know, you guys, my paraphrase, you guys are going to go into, your, into captivity in Babylon. 
because of covenantal unfaithfulness, you have basically ignored my, ignored my covenant with you. You've worshipped all the idols uh, of the, the pagans within my promised land. And because of that, <clears throat> I'm, going to, I'm going to allow my temple to be destroyed, and I'm going to let you be carried off to Babylon for 70 years. Nonetheless, that's not the end of it. After the 70-year captivity, I will bring you back to this land. That's where Jeremiah 29, 11, right? We all know that verse, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's actually a, a promise that pertains to the post-exilic period, although we can apply that to our lives also uh, at times. And so God has ha- had this plan, and he has this plan to bring his people back to um, Jerusalem and to rebuild. And he actually stirs the heart of a pagan king to make this thing happen, to kick this plan into gear. And not only that, but the Lord stirs, it says, uh, the Lord stirs the spirits of people who are to go back and rebuild the the temple and, and Jerusalem and all that. So God's plan, and then God also motivates the people to get on board, basically, with his plan. And this group goes back to uh, Jerusalem. Cyrus gives them incredible favor. It says that he brought out <clears throat> the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. You remember when they were carried away, all the artifacts of the temple were carried away they were evidently stored and, and, and kind of preserved in a particular place. And now they actually bring all those artifacts back to what will become the, the rebuilt temple. Um, <clears throat> chapter 2 of Ezra, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, or Joshua, are named in verse 2, and, and they're, among, uh, they're named among those who returned to Jerusalem with the first wave Again, Zerubbabel is kind of the administrative leader. He's the governor, the civil leader, and Jeshua is the high priest. And these two individuals kind of head up this project of restoring the place of worship in Jerusalem. We get to uh, chapter 3 of Ezra. It says, When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. So the the wave has returned and they all gather in Jerusalem. And it says, Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, uh, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers, arose. And the first thing that they do is they build the altar. It says, They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so they recognize they've been, carried, they've been carried away and they basically lost their country because they didn't follow the law of Moses and, and they did many things that were contrary to the law. So here they are back in the land and the first thing that they do is build the altar and the altar is the place of worship. It's the place where the sacrifice is received and it's the place where um, atonement is made. And obviously it ultimately points toward the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 3. So, so they rebuild this offering to offer burnt offerings on it as written in the law of Moses. In verse 3, it says, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar 
on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. And it says that they do this even though fear has come upon them because of the the surrounding nations. If you think about, um, well, we know that when the northern kingdom was carried away of Israel, the, the king of Israel planted people from all throughout the Assyrian Empire in the land of um, Israel, and that's where the, the Samaritans come from, uh, mixed together with those of the Israelites who had left in the land. So there's opposition from the Samaritans, and there's also um, those kind of administrators of Persia who are there, and we're going to hear about Tatanai and those who try to stir up trouble. So there's an atmosphere of fear among the people of God who have returned to Jerusalem. But it says, nonetheless, in the midst of that environment, even though we were afraid, we still built the altar and we still began to worship our God by offering the morning and the evening sacrifices. And sometimes, you know, when we decide that we're going to kind of rebuild the altar and worship the Lord, sometimes there can be a fear in the midst of that when, you know, when we're serving the Lord in the midst of a hostile environment or a hostile climate. It says, nonetheless, they did it. And so we can apply that to our own lives, that walking with the Lord, sometimes we're going to be afraid of, you know, the effects of our our life of worship as we worship Jesus Christ in this world, and as others take offense to the sacrifices that we want to make for him. And it can be a cost. Yet here, it says that even though fear had come upon them, they still set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. They kind of like shut out every, everything else, like, okay, I, I see all this stuff that can come against me, but I know that God wants me to worship him, so I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to, you know, whatever, whatever fear, I'm just going to kind of like put that aside, and I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to determine to do that. And that's the kind of the attitude of their hearts that we see here as worship is being reinstituted after a 70-year hiatus. Obviously, when they were carried away to Babylon, they didn't forget about Yahweh. They had... There was the culture of the synagogues and the reading of the Torah and all that sort of thing, but sacrifice had pretty much stopped and the temple was gone. And all of a sudden, that's going to get restarted, and the devil is going to oppose that anytime that he's kind of taken something over and you want to go back in there and reconsecrate something to the Lord. There's always going to be resistance, but we have to you know, be bold and be firm and, and that sort of thing. Um, so... <clears throat> Verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, In the second month of the second year of the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, Jeshua the son of Josedek, and the rest of the brethren, uh, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity of Jerusalem began to work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Uh, skipping down verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. So here, um, 
the temple, the cornerstone of the temple has been laid, and it's significant. The cornerstone is a very important piece in, you know, the foundation and all that. And they've come together and they rejoice. The priests, you know, after 70 years, there they are, and here is the cornerstone. And they sing this responsive um, psalm to the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And there's this mixed reaction that happens. It says that, you know, the, the people are praising and rejoicing, but there are the old men who had seen the first temple and they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted for joy so that the people couldn't discern the noise of joy from the noise of weeping. And it's interesting, um, Haggai is actually going to, we'll look at one of the prophecies from Haggai, he's going to encourage the people because you know, they look at the foundation of the temple and the old men remember how glorious Solomon's temple was, the marble and the gold and just the, you know, it was a stunning building and then it was completely destroyed. And now they see this kind of thing that is, is going to apparently be a shadow of Solomon's temple. It's going to have a smaller footprint. It's not going to be that glorious. It's not going to be until the days of Herod, like 400 years later, that it's going to be um, renovated and turned into a, a more glorious building. But Haggai is going to say, hey, you know what? This temple is going to be even more glorious than Solomon's temple. And why? Well, because Jesus is actually going to be dedicated. One day he's going to show up in the temple that's being built, that this cornerstone has just been, been laid. Um, now, they do this, they begin the work, and when we get to chapter 4 of Ezra, they encounter opposition, and the work stops for a time. They, they come back to Jerusalem according to the, the word of God, according to the will of God, and they, be, they reestablish, they start offering sacrifices, and all of a sudden, they encounter opposition. Oh, no. And it seems like things stop for about 17 Years It tells us, I'll just skim a little bit in chapter 4. Um, it says, When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple, notice they're referred to as the adversaries, right? They're building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. Now, do they really, have they been doing that? Well, no, it's, it's, it's quite unlikely. So verse 3, it says, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua <clears throat> and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing uh, with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So, and then the, the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of King Cyrus of Persia, even until the reign of Darius. So they're doing what God has called them to do, yet there's this persecution that arises in, in a variety of means. They're, they're 
they're hiring counselors, they're discouraging, they're coming against them. And so often, you know, we're doing something that God has called us to do. And we need to be careful that we don't misinterpret persecution and opposition as, oh, that's a closed door. God must not want to do this because there's, you know, this person's coming against me or, or this maybe civil authority or you don't have a permit for that or, or whatever. And sometimes we can misinterpret um, kickback for a closed door. And very often a door can be an open door, yet we need to go before the Lord and we need to get the plan from him, what he wants us to do, how he wants us to move forward in a particular sort of way. So here, evidently, the, the work stops, the building of the temple, for 17 whole years. Um, and then we get to, let's see, chapter 5 of Ezra, covering a lot of ground. Actually, chapter 423, I'll just read a, a verse. It says, they went up in haste, to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased and it was discontinued until uh, the second reign of the year of Darius, king of Persia. Well, the second year of Darius, king of Persia, rolls around. And chapter 5, things get started again after about 17 years. In chapter 5, it says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So here we have these uh, prophets and they're with this kind of reconstruction team and all that. And they speak the word of the Lord to them in the name of the God of Israel. And what is the result of these prophetic words that they speak, well, verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, So Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. This work just grinds to a halt for a number of years. And all of a sudden, God is like, you know what? I'm not finished yet, and there's something more that needs to happen here. We need to get this thing restarted. So um, I read the verse from Amos at the beginning that God does nothing unless he speaks it to his prophets. And here we have evidently Haggai and Zechariah. They begin to speak words from the Lord that encourage the builders to resume their building. So they resume at the words of the prophets, um, And when they do that, they're opposed by Tatanai, who writes uh, the new king, Darius. He says, hey, Darius, if you let these people build their temple, then you're going to lose your dominion and it's going to cost you and all that. So um, they write this letter to Darius and Darius actually issues a a decree. He does some research and then he issues a decree which greatly assists the building process what they're doing. And Darius's decree actually seems to be triggered by the fact that uh, Tatanai opposes the work of the Jews who are rebuilding in Jerusalem. So they, uh, the Jews, they, they receive the words of Haggai and Zechariah, they start working, and then the Lord kind of moves his hand and stirs the spirit of Darius to issue this other decree where um, 
the, the Jews will be aided in the reconstruction of the temple. So these two prophets are named here. We have Haggai and Zechariah. And, you know, it says that the Jews prospered through the, the prophesying of these two men. And what is the word through the prophets to Zerubbabel as it pertains to the rebuilding of the place of worship in the midst of opposition? And what I want to do is take a look at some of these prophetic words from Haggai and Zechariah. We'll see how far uh, we get this morning. But I'll read a little bit from Haggai chapter 1. Um, and it says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, The people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house uh, should be built. And so the, the attitude of the, of the people who had come back some years previously, they had begun, they laid the, the cornerstone of the temple, they had begun sacrifices, and then there was all this opposition and they were forced to stop. So they go and kind of turn inward and they focus on their own things, building their own houses and all that sort of thing. And, and that is the attitude of the people um, where Haggai begins to prophesy. And so he says, hey, this is the mood of the people. You know, the, the people say, hey, it's not time. God's hand isn't really moving, you know. This is more of a time where we should just like hunker down and all that. Well, verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Uh, and then he describes what's happening. You've sown much and you bring in little. You eat and you don't have enough. You drink and you're not filled. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Basically he's saying, you know, you guys are inwardly focused and because of it, your lives aren't blessed. And then he, he exhorts them. He says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be, and be glorified. So God is saying, you know, you, you've been focusing on your own sort of thing, um, but it is the time now for you to begin to build the temple and to get this worship going again, get the temple fully rebuilt because I have yet a plan for this temple. My son ultimately is going to walk into this temple one day. So um, skipping down verse 12, it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke, uh, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And how do we need to hear that today? I am with you. And do you believe that God is with you? I mean, he's with us, right? Emmanuel, God is with us. If, if you are a Christian today, you have his Holy Spirit living in you and he is with you and he wants to lead and direct your life and he wants to be glorified in your life. And he has a part for all of us 
to play. So he says, I am with you. And then it says, verse 14, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of uh, Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in uh, the second year of King Darius. So the the word of the prophet Haggai has such a powerful influence on the people who had just let the, the things of God fall by the wayside. All of a sudden, someone comes along and, hey, you know, God has a plan. You guys are like, focus on, on your own deal. Well, he wants you to be focused on his deal, and you're going to be blessed through that. You know, your life is inwardly focused life. It, it becomes kind of not really fruitful, and you're not blessed, and other people aren't blessed. But as you begin to focus on the Lord, then there's this this wonderful thing that that happens. So the Lord stirs up Zerubbabel and all the people, the high priest, and they begin working again. And this plan of God begins to get into motion again. Haggai chapter 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st, of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes Nothing, as I mentioned before, that some of the older men, they had seen the glory of Solomon's temple, and now they see this thing which is comparatively a shack, right? There's like, you know, it's like just an unobtrusive building. And how he, the prophet says, how do these compare? Which one was more glorious? Looking on the outside. Well, we would think Solomon's, but here the prophet says uh, in verse 4 of Haggai chapter 2, yet now be strong, even though this thing doesn't look like much. Be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Is that not just, again, I am with you, be strong. You may not feel strong. You may feel what you are doing is insignificant, and you may feel like this is a really insignificant building, and how how does this pertain to us being the 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 um the chosen people of God, you know God's covenant nation and all that? This thing is so insignificant. Yet God says, "I am with you. Work um, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Do not fear." And again, so often we think that the work that we're doing, you know, we do what we can do kind of in our own abilities and all that, but there's a work that God wants to do in us and through us, you know, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to what, according to the power that works within us to him be glory in the church. So God has called each one of us to do something. He's given us spiritual gifts. And at the end of the day, it's his power that is at work in our lives. We may think that, you know, what can I do? You know, little old insignificant me. Yet you never know what God might want to do through your life. He is with you, and there's a work that he wants to do 
for his kingdom in the building of his kingdom. Uh, verse 6 here of, of Haggai 2. For, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple, this insignificant, ratty little building, I will fill it with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace. So even though it's the, this new temple is a smaller footprint, it's going to be more glorious because the Son of God is going to walk in there. He'll actually be dedicated in there. And you have, you know, in Luke's gospel, Simeon prophesies over him and Anna, the, the woman who serves the Lord in the temple, and they speak wonderful words over Jesus. And then about 30 years later, Jesus is going to clear that temple and he's going to teach in the temple courts and all of this, you know, his, the glory of God will be in this, in this temple. Um, Haggai also mentions Zerubbabel uh, is going to be God's signet ring. In other words, if you know what a signet ring is, basically the authority of the person who wore the ring on their finger. They would they would seal it, put their seal upon something, and it signif it signif it's, yeah it signified all of their authority and all of the, all of the weight of who they are. And so God is saying that you know Zerubbabel. You are my signet ring. And this reconstruction of the temple, it comes with all the backing of my authority. And if you have, you know, the authority of God for what you're doing in his life, and if you have the power of God for what he wants to do in your life, what what is more important than that? You know, um, it, the, the, when the apostles were harassed and arrested in the book of Acts, is it chapter three or four or five, somewhere around there? You know, ultimately, they're commanded no, to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And they say, hey, you decide whether it's better for us to obey God or you. You know, we're going to do what God has called us to do. And Zerubbabel here is like the signet ring of God. And he has God's authority for the thing that he's doing. You know, we don't... Um, there's an orderly way to do things within the kingdom of God. There's a, a kind of a structure that's in place, but everything that happens in the world, and as far as Jesus building his church in the world, we don't have to get everybody's permission for the things, for the things that God is doing in the world. And a lot of people are going to be opposed to what we're doing, um, but God is the one that's doing the work, and he's given us authority, right? Um, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so he wants to do a work in and through our lives, and we really are his signet ring, right, in the world. He's given us his authority, his power, and his authority, his dunamis and his exousia. So uh, the glory of the present house is going to be gr greater than the former house, um, so that's Haggai. Those are some of just a, like a survey of the prophetic words of Haggai and how those words caused the Jews to prosper in their reconstruction of the temple and the place of worship after the Babylonian captivity. I want to look at Zechariah now and examine some of the words of Zechariah and see how they affect and impact the work of God that's happening 
on the ground. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16. Zechariah actually has a series of um, visions in the night. And we'll look at some, we're not going to go through the whole book of Zechariah, but we'll look at some of his prophecies, his visions. So one, chapter 1, verse 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the, um, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. He said, and we looked last week um, in the study when we talked about the tabernacle and how God had said, make, make a structure that I may dwell with my people, make a building, make me a building. And then when it's dedicated, the glory of God comes. And then Solomon's temple is dedicated and the glory of God comes. And then in uh, the scriptures after, you know, the Israelites have disobeyed the Lord, that we have the word Ichabod, the glory is departed. And there's the picture in Ezekiel of the, the glory of God departing from the temple. And it's a tragic thing, Right. Well, here, after the Babylonian captivity, we have this word, and the Lord says, I am returning to Jerusalem. Uh-oh. And people are going to try to stop that, stop the work of God. Well, God is always moving forward, and his kingdom is expanding, right? Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here he says, I am returning to Jerusalem. Tatanai, the governor of the land, and these people who are there, it's like, you know, they're dust in his hands and all that. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. But survey, I'm not like a construction person, but from what I understand, survey is one of the first things that you do, right? You have a building lot and you have the, you know, the survey and you figure out where the fixed points are and all that sort of thing. Well, here the prophet is saying, my, my house will be built and a survey, survey will be taken and buildings will be constructed in Jerusalem and all that. And um, if you think about it, they had come and they had laid the cornerstone. And you ever like drive past a, a, a place and you see like a foundation and there's all like weeds overgrown and they just must have run out of money or something like that. And the, the building just never was completed. Well, here, it's, it's that same sort of thing. You know, how many times they walk by, oh, there's the temple, there's that kind of cornerstone and all that. That was years ago. That's a done deal. Well, no. Here, these years later, Zechariah the prophet is saying, my house shall be built. So you see that cornerstone? There's going to be stuff added to that. There's going to be the rest of the foundation, and the whole thing's going to take shape. A surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 2, verse uh, 5, For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So there's this... Um, yeah, if you have time to read the whole thing, it, it's great. But that, this gives you an idea in speaking of Jerusalem being this re-inhabited place with people in the streets and all that, Zechariah 2, 5, I will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. And that's, you know, if we think about the church today, there's a lot of things that do uh, come against the church, yet um, in its true spiritual nature, there's a wall of fire around it. And nothing can come to us as the people of God that hasn't already been filtered through 
his hands. Yes, things are going to happen to us in this life, and, and we're going to be persecuted and, and whatnot, but there's something that's deeper than that, and the true nature of the church and who we are, you know, we are, um, it says that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places and that we are, are in him and he is in us. You know, you read through First John and some of the deep things that are in that letter, and there's this wall of fire that is around the church of God, and he is the glory in the midst also. And so this temple being reconstructed, it's a God thing, and it's going to happen. We get to Zechariah uh, chapter 3, and there's the vision of Joshua, the high priest, who's being accused before Satan. We know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And so Joshua, the high priest, is the spiritual leader in Jerusalem, kind of responsible for ultimately the head of all the worship that's happening. And in this heavenly vision, Satan is there and he's saying, Joshua, you are defiled. You have no business representing the people of God. You have no business worshiping God. You are a sinner and all that. And it says that he's covered with filthy garments and all that sort of thing. And what is the word of the Lord in in that vision? It says, the Lord rebuke you. Is this not a, um, a brand that has been pulled by the fire and the command is given to put a, a clean turban on Joshua, the high priest, and clean garments and all that. And, you know, we look at our own lives and maybe we feel defiled in different ways. We recognize that we're all sinners, right? And uh, all that. Nonetheless, God wants to use us and he's given us his robes of righteousness. He's put a clean turban on our head. He's given us garments of white, and we can serve him because he has made us holy, right? Because we have given our lives to him. We've been washed in the blood of the lamb. And he wants to use us, fallen sinful human beings. He wants to use us to build his kingdom. So Joshua, you know, he is the high priest in this community that's returned to Jerusalem. And whatever kind of spiritual warfare may have been happening in his head or, or whatever, here he gets this word from God through Zechariah, the high priest, that God is going to use him. Zechariah chapter 4, <clears throat> there's this vision, this wonderful vision of the lampstand and the olive trees where there's something that's unique that's happening. The, the olive trees are dripping the oil into the lamps of the lampstand. They don't have to go out and kind of harvest the olives and press the oil and do all this work in order to get this illumination, you know, for the menorah that is in the temple. Rather, it's a supernatural thing where the trees are just dripping into the receptacles. And oil, we know, is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. And the word here in, uh, let's see, Zechariah 4, chapter 6 Zechariah is asking, hey, what is all this about? And the angel is like, Do you, don't you know what this is about? And he says, no. And so he answered me, verse uh, 6 of chapter 4, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace grace to it. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands shall also finish it. 
Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, who has despised the day of small things. For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So here, Zerubbabel gets a specific word as it pertains to this vision that, hey, Zerubbabel, you know, you've, your hands, your very hands have laid this cornerstone. Well, guess what? It's been a vacant lot for 17 years, but your hands are also going to complete this work. And it's not going to be from your own kind of effort and ability and all that, but it's going to be a work of grace. It's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And God ultimately causes this temple to, to prosper and to be completed and to be finished. Um, but it is a work of the Lord. And he says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And obviously, the application in the New Testament sense I mean, how can we ever do anything? You know, we're born into the world, fallen, sinful people, completely lost, right? And then one day, by the grace of God, his Holy Spirit drew each one of us, as many as of you who know the Lord today in this room, and we surrender to his lordship, and we receive the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, and he filled us with his Holy Spirit. He will be with you, and he will be in you, and he will come upon you. The Spirit of God doing a work in a human life that no person could ever possibly accomplish. And hopefully you've all experienced that today. And so his word is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. We, you know, kind of have, we have our, maybe we have our own disposition. We have our own sort of things that we're good at. You know, when we come into the world and maybe some people are good at sports, other people are good in academics or, or uh, mechanical things or music or whatever. But when you come to know the Lord, the Bible tells us that we are given spiritual gifts by which we can serve him in his kingdom and building up the church and all that. And Paul talks about, you know, is, is everyone, you know, there is everyone an eye? Is everyone a whatever? All these, there are all these different parts of the body that come together. But at the end of the day, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by the spirit of God that is working in each one of us. And that was the word to Zerubbabel in this kind of really big task that was ahead of him, getting this building built and fully getting worship re go, restarted in, in Jerusalem. And the same sort of way, God is doing a work in his church. It's a work of grace. He's the one. Jesus Christ is that cornerstone, right? That you know, there's no other foundation. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And everything else is built on him. Uh, but there's this work that he's doing, and he's building, you know, Peter, we looked at that verse last week, this other temple where living stones and we're being built together to form this temple where God is worshipped in our midst. And so here, that's probably all that we're going to look at in terms of the, the, the Haggai and Zechariah, but there's some lessons that we can look at and there's this exhortation that comes through God's prophets that 
kind of get things going again. And Second Peter one nineteen tells us that the prophetic word of God is like a light that shines in a dark place. And Zerubbabel and Joshua had gotten into a dark place. God had clearly opened the door through a decree from a pagan king to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and get worship going again. And then there's all of a sudden this apparently contrary evidence on the ground. They get back there, and it's like they just kind of get started. And then, you know, the Samaritans and, and the enemies of the people of God come to oppose this work. And it looks like Zerubbabel and, and uh, Jeshua and the rest of the people have gotten themselves into a dark place. And it seems like, you know, I can't see God working. I don't understand what's going on. So they kind of retreat inwardly. God had opened this door and the contrary evidence, things aren't going as expected. And, and there's this darkness that sets in. But all of a sudden, the lights of the prophets kind of illuminate what God is doing, and things get back on track again. All of a sudden, Haggai, hey, you know what? I have a word from the Lord. Arise and build. You know, the, the glory of this house is going to be even greater than Solomon's temple, even though it looks like a weeded lot with just a kind of abandoned cornerstone there. The glory of this house is going to be greater than Solomon's temple because it's a work of the Spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And, you know, sometimes we can find ourselves involved in a spiritual work, something that God began. It was a wonderful thing. And all of a sudden there's opposition and setbacks. And we begin to wonder, like, are you even in this? And we can kind of retreat into our own darkness and we can retreat into our own sort of thing. And <clears throat> there's a temptation sometimes to take our armor off and just kind of sit things out for a while. You know, like, okay, I am tired. You know, it seems like that was a heavy-duty battle. I'm just, I found just a comfortable place, so I'm going to take my helmet off and, you know, take my armor off and just, like, rest a while and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, there's, there's a place for that. But this isn't the time to do that, I would say. I would say that God wants to do a work and, you know, we can look at the world today and maybe we might be disappointed about the days that we're living in and the things that we see happening. But I would say that God has a work that he wants each of us to do, that he's uniquely gifted us to do. You know, there's the song back in the, in the church in York, we have, um, kids worship like once a month and the kids come out and they do all the hand motions and there's the song who's got their armor on put it on piece by piece i'll put it on and all that and you know it talks about the helmet of salvation and the the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and all these things and you know we can go through a dark time in our, our life or maybe in the life of the church and we can get just tempted okay i'm just going to let the sword kind of fall down take my helmet off you know i'm tired and all that but this isn't the time to do that. If there ever was a time for us not to do that, now is the time for us not to do that, right? God has a work that he wants us to do. These are exciting days that we're living in. Last week I said that, you know, God, Google is not greater than God, and Jesus Christ is in no danger of being deplatformed and all that. And 
he has a work for us to do and he's given us his Holy Spirit. And we need to stir that up. And sometimes, you know, we read the scripture. Maybe we get, maybe we're listening to a Bible study somewhere and we just hear a word from the Lord. And it's just what we needed in order for us to pick the trowel up again and, you know, mix up some concrete and slop it on top of the next layer of bricks or whatever and build the thing that God is doing. And, and God says, I am with you, right? You may go, be going through the physical motions of stirring the concrete and all that and whatever, but God is with you and he's with me and he's with us. And there's a work that he wants us to do in the world today. So it's, it's no time really to be, you know, downcast and that sort of thing. It is a time to rejoice in the Lord and to kind of stir up the work of the spirit in your own life and in the life of, of the church. He's got good things that he's doing. You know, Daniel, those who know their God will do exploits. He has exploits for us to do. You know, I don't know what an exploit is specifically, but, you know, you can look at some of the things like David and slaying Goliath and just all these different things that we see people doing in in the scriptures that they had no business doing in their own natural ability, yet they believed in their God. And, you know, there's human frailty and human weakness, but sometimes God just wants us to step out a little bit beyond what we're normally accustomed to doing and maybe doing something that's a little bit kind of radical as we're led by the Spirit. I mean, people do a lot of goofy things and blame it on the Lord, but there are genuine works that he wants us to do as we cultivate an ear that hears what he's saying and as we you know, begin to develop the ability to use the weapons that he's given us. So, um, yeah, so again, Jesus said, you know, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I would say, if there's anything to leave you with today, God is saying, I am with you and keep moving forward in your walk with him pressing inward and onward to know him and expect to see his hand at work as he builds his church.